0: Thanks, Madeline and Kenny. I just love worshiping here and I'm grateful again to be able to open the word to you. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we're going to talk about God's promises he's made to his people. I don't don't think there's any other religion in the world that has this idea of God being a husband to his people where he makes a covenant commitment that the God of the Bible is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He makes promises. God has every right to just order us around. He has every right to do that, but he makes promises. He, He commits to us in promises. I was pondering that as we were singing through these great, Uh, songs about God's relationship with His church that's grounded in His covenant He's made with her. And I thought, how kind of Him to make promises to us. When you make a promise to someone, it's a a very kind thing, isn't it? Especially when you have the ability to simply mandate things. What, What do you think God's after when He makes promises? When you make a promise to someone, what is that s- supposed to do? What's that supposed to accomplish? Let's think about that together. What do you think? What, what are promises supposed to create? Trust. Yeah, so a promise is supposed to be a foundation for trust. Right? So I can I trust you? Yes, I promise you can. You, you make a, a pledge, a commitment that is supposed to engender trust. Good, Lil. Good. Other, other things it brings about? Confidence. Yeah, a confidence in that contract, in that commitment, that rela- whether it's a business relationship or a marriage relationship, there is a confidence that's supposed to come from that promise. Now, that all depends on the integrity of the promiser, right? Uh, so, so, but if there's integrity there, if there's trustworthiness there, it can bring a confidence in that relationship. Good. What else would a promise bring? Yeah, it establishes the relationship. It's it's the establishment of that relationship. All different kinds of relationships are established by a promise. This morning we think about marriage. But but yeah, it it is the, the structure, the infrastructure of a relationship. Good. So it should bring a sense of settledness, right? A sense of peace, a sense of confidence, And it should war against the opposites of those things, of anxiety and worry and insecurity and hopelessness and despair. To think that Almighty God makes promises to his people like a husband does to a wife is an amazing thing and so kind of him. And and that's really uh, what I want us to think about. I'm so grateful for how thoughtful Kenny is as he crafts our time of worship around these passages and gets right at the point where if, if I keeled over before the sermon, we would have been fine. Uh, The message would have been there. It's just beautiful. So let me read this passage together, Mark chapter 10, and we will see that it's actually not primarily about divorce and marriage. Yes, even though that's what the heading says probably in your Bible, teaching about divorce. And it is that, no doubt about it. But there's something far deeper going on here. Actually, the same thing that's been going on in the whole Gospel of Mark. So let's read this together. Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, And again, as was his custom, he taught them. You know, Jesus in some ways was very unpredictable. But in other ways, he was very predictable. I love that term, as was his custom. You should pay attention how often Jesus' ministry is described with that term. Jesus did things as a matter of custom. You could count on Jesus to teach. Teaching was central to his ministry. It should be central to the ministry of the church as well. So he taught them. And watch this. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful or for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that's a on- good question, right? There's an important ethical question here on the table, but we actually are given insight into their motives, You know, we really should pay attention to our cliches because sometimes they're just unchristian. They're unbiblical, even though we've come to give them almost a biblical way. But th- there's an expression that I've heard my whole life, never question someone's motives. Th- that is just not a biblical approach to life. Motives are incredibly important. Yours and the motives of others. The Bible says we should be very discerning about motives. Now, the truth of that expression is don't simplistically do that. Don't assume you know someone's motives before you have discerned that with some wisdom. But but this idea of not questioning motives is just not helpful and not biblical. We're given insight into the motives behind this question. This is not an honest question. This is not a question truly seeking truth truly wanting answers. This is a, tra- a question to trick Jesus, to test him, to exploit a weakness of some kind by once again asking him to enter into a heated debate of the time so he gets in trouble, so they can maintain their prominence in society. That's what these leaders are after, the dirty scoundrels. Um, that should be a little footnote in there, dirty scoundrels, but, but it's not. But I'll just add it. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And watch Jesus' brilliance here. Watch. He answered them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Wow, that's a really broad question. After all, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. A lot to choose from there. And it's very telling where they go to answer that question within the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and where Jesus goes to answer that question. They go to very different places, and it's very telling about their approach and their motives and their desires in simply where they go to answer that question and how they answer it. What did Moses command you? Watch where they go. Deuteronomy 24. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And they are. They're they're quoting from Deuteronomy 24 there. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus actually adds this to what we find in Genesis 2. He just quoted from Genesis 2. Now he adds more revelation to that passage. What therefore, and here's his answer, God has joined together. Let not man separate. And now, as we've seen before, the public teaching goes private and deeper. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, there's Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching sometimes is hard for us. Sometimes it's pretty um, hard to understand for us, but it's always loving. It's always loving to tell us the truth. Oh, what a hard topic. Divorce is a devastating thing. You know that? Um, it, it, It just causes all kinds of heartache and damage. And I bet if we went around this room, there would not be one of us who isn't in some way significantly affected by the ravages of divorce in some way. I bet every single one of us can figure out a way divorce has affected us. Maybe not directly, but indirectly it's, it's had an effect. You know, I'm 51. My parents were divorced when I was 3. And this week I'm I can tell you all these details, but I I this week I'm 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 picking up pieces from all of that. It's ancient history, 1967, but this week because of different circumstances, I'm I'm navigating how to solve problems and 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 deal with issues that have arisen recently and my mother's health problems and, and different things. And and it's it's profoundly affected by the fact that my parents are divorced. Not to mention the emotional effects of these things and the relational implications. And, and divorce is a devastating thing. And and you can all speak to that, I'm sure. Uh, And I think we've gone through a massive cultural shift. It really is interesting to have been alive now for half a century, (gasps) over half a century, and watch things shift. And even hear my mother's perspective. My mother said, even though I would say my mother was was the victim of her divorce, my mother said she she could go around her whole neighborhood and point out two kinds of houses. Houses that had lost a boy in the war. Everybody knew who had lost a son in the war, World War II. And she said, and we also knew where the divorced person lived. She she remembers in 67, even though things had already really started to shift in a big way, there was still this This stigma, this burden where she felt like she walked around with a big D on her chest, like the scarlet letters, the unforgivable sin that that she carried around the rest of her life. She said, you could tell the kids, the houses that had lost a son because there was a star in the window and the houses where the divorcee lived had the shades pulled. And she remembers that so clearly, and it had such an effect on her. But my goodness, in our day, we have seen such a shift to the point where now, rather, I think, generally than than the stigma, there can be a divorce culture That we live in. There can be such an affirmation on doing what feels good to you at the moment, pursuing your own happiness in the moment as your ultimate goal. Self fulfillment, self affirmation becomes the way of the world to the point where divorce isn't seen by many people the way it used to be. Now, both are problems, right? a lack of grace, a lack of perspective, a lack of understanding in, in light of the, the diffi- difficult realities of divorce, or a human-centered, self-affirming approach to it where marriage is so devalued and divorce is not a big deal. You sort of almost expect that, that it's part of what's going on. I Google divorce. Do you know... As much money as the marriage industry generates in our country, the divorce industry generates far more money. I googled divorce, here's the first hit. California divorce online, $149. California paperwork in minutes, fast, lawyer free, 100% guaranteed, rated A plus by the Better Business Bureau. Second hit, call now to speak to an uncontested divorce specialist in Orange County. Fast, no lawyers, 100% guaranteed. We complete and file everything. Next hit, best way to divorce. No workshops, no appointments, no lawyers. Do-it-yourself, California divorce. Next hit, doing your California divorce is easy, as featured on CNN, USA Today, and NBC. Low-cost divorce, $159. You would think they're selling something on the shopping network. That you really don't need, but you just, you, you, you want to get it done. In a, in a best-selling book, listen to this. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it's easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, and a growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph, an article that was widely circulated last year talked about four types of infidelity that can save your marriage if you practice them. Will Smith and his wife have a Hollywood marriage that people really look up to, and they say that Will Smith and his wife have revealed the secret to a happy marriage, which is an open marriage. And Will Smith says, quote, our perspective is you don't avoid what's natural. What an important way of talking that we need to pay attention to you don't avoid what's natural he says you're going to be attracted to people in our marriage vows we didn't say forsaking all others if it came down to it we can look at one another and say look i need to have a relationship with this person but i won't do it if you don't approve of it but please approve of it And so because we have such a hard time maintaining commitments, we just devalue commitments or do away with them altogether. It's very hard to see marriage and divorce the way God does in our passage this morning. But but we need to. We, We need to pay attention to what God says here. We can't depend on our culture or our feelings in the moment or Pu- a public opinion polls to decide what's true for us. Do you know when I was a kid, it would cost you your political career if you committed adultery. You could make all the racist statements you wanted and it wouldn't have much of an effect. Do you know that's completely flipped now? <laughs> now my point is to not, not to argue the relative horrors of those two sins. But to say, we can't depend on our culture to determine our values. We cannot wait around for the popular opinion to decide what's right. Because not only does it flip on important things sometimes and call evil good and good evil, most of the time there's this confusion at every level. And so we need to go to the word. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. I love that. Did you notice where Jesus goes? When this really difficult ethical question is asked of him, he doesn't go to popular opinion. He doesn't quote any rabbis. He goes right to the Word of God. The Scriptures are his authority. He assumes a clarity and an authority of the scriptures, and that's the resource he points to. And that's where they go. What does Moses command you? Let's go to the word, he says. If we're going to debate this, let's have the word be our source, our resource, our authority, our foundation. And that's where he goes. He points them to the word. The Bible is Jesus' authority. It's amazing to me. I I'm actually asked fairly consistently, hey, you're a leader in the church. What do you think about this massive shift culturally going on with sexual morality? You know increasingly the church is going to seem very irrelevant and old-fashioned. What are you going to do about it? And and if you say, well, nothing. I'm not going to change what I believe because that's where culture's going. And people say, but you know, the, the majority now no longer agrees with you on that as if that should be this compelling reason to change what we think. It's amazing how that's the assumption. It seems like every interview I see of an evangelical Christian now, that's how the the whole argument, the discussion goes. You know you're in the minority now, as if that ever deters a Christian from holding to the truth of what God clearly says. And so we go to the Word. That's our basis for it. It's clear and and it's authoritative. But it's fascinating to look where the the Pharisees choose to go. It really is. Of all the places they could have gone, they go to Deuteronomy 24, where there is an allowance for divorce. And this is what it says from Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. So in Deuteronomy 24, there is an allowance for divorce In the case of indecency, so the whole debate between the teachers became, well, what's indecency? What does that mean? And some in the minority conservative rabbis said, well, indecency is adultery. It's it's sexual immorality. It's unfaithfulness in marriage. But the majority view, and it was the more liberal view, that indecency could be anything that made the husband unhappy. Anything that made the husband uh, find his wife indecent. And and the rabbi, the leading advocate of this more liberal view, he actually said it could be as small as messing up dinner again. Really, that's what he says. She she destroys the dinner. And so, so that could be enough basis for your divorce. And what's fascinating is we in our society today don't even need a reason at all called No Fault fault Divorce. There doesn't need to be any substantive rationale for this divorce. It's just, I don't want to stay in this marriage, period. And so you may say, wow, that's all you need to do to divorce your wife? Well, you don't even need that in our society. That's what's become of divorce in marriage. And so, so, so Jesus answers them in a fascinating way. Did you see what he says? He says, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus responds this way in verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. That's why he did this. That's fascinating, isn't it? Let's step back, though, and just reflect on what Jesus does right here. What did Jesus just do? He says, it doesn't say it in the scriptures, but let me tell you what was in the mind of God when he gave you that allowance for divorce. Wow! He's not quoting a rabbi. He's not speculating. He's telling you God's rationale for an allowance for divorce. That is astounding, staggering authority. Jesus says, let me tell you what the divine motive in the allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 is. Let me let you into what God was thinking when he gave that allowance. That's amazing. That is just astounding authority. Jesus is going to the scriptures and Jesus is coming with divine authority himself as he gives us insight into the divine mind here. It's really incredible. Notice what else he says there. That one phrase is just incredible. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. What he's saying is, is God made an allowance that wasn't the ideal because your hearts were so hard. There was a condition of your heart. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to the people who received that command initially, but he's talking right to them as well. He's talking to the people of God. He's talking to humanity in general. He's talking to us this morning. There's a hardness of heart that at times will lead God to make allowances that aren't the ideal on the way to the ideal. So, what's going on here. Think of the kings of Israel, right? The kings of Israel were an allowance, really, for a hardness of heart. Remember the people said, we want a king. And remember what God said? What did he say? I'm your king. What do you mean you want a king like all the other nations? You have one, the best, most powerful, benevolent king you could ever have. Why do you want it? Well, no, we want want to be like the other nations. And God says, all right, okay. I'll give you a king. And let's see how this works out. Let's see if even the best one can be the kind of king I am for you. It's an amazing thing that God condescends and works with us, sometimes in response to a hardness of heart. You know, wise parents do that too, don't they? Wise human parents at times will allow something to run its course in a child's life. So they really learn what he's after here. He, he works with us. He's a brilliant teacher, God is. And the way he, he makes allowances that aren't the ideal. And that's what Jesus is saying here. God made an allowance because of your hardness of heart, but it's not the ideal. And I'm, I'm fascinated also by the way Jesus talks about this hardness of heart. Notice he says, because of your hardness of heart. He doesn't include himself in the hard-heartedness. He includes everybody else, though. Um, This is amazing. One of the things that I've actually been so comforted by as I've read the Bible is the way godly leaders always include themselves in the sin of the people, even when they weren't personally in the details included in that sin. It's always been fascinating to me whether it's Isaiah who is a holy man or Ezra who's a holy man will be calling the people out but will use all these we terms. Our sin has risen above our heads. There's a, an inclusion of themselves in this, not with Jesus. Jesus is the one exception who doesn't have a hardness of heart amazing authority, and in the midst of that, amazing holiness. Jesus is not one of the hard-hearted ones. He's really the only one who isn't hard-hearted. And so he helps them understand the quote they went to so that he can get the quote he wants them to go to. Jesus doesn't see Deuteronomy 24 as the best place to answer their question. He sees Genesis 2 as the best place to answer their question. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, Jesus says. Then in verse 6 says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes to the foundation of marriage. They want to talk about ways they can get out of marriage. Jesus wants to go to the divine origin of marriage in creation and the permanence of it that God calls us to he goes to Genesis 2:24 and then adds as we said verse 9 therefore because this is divinely defined and created man does not have the ability and should not think he does have the ability to separate what god has joined together that's not man's prerogative he's saying and their approach is very troubling now i believe the bible gives biblical grounds for marriage where, for divorce, where divorce can be done and it's not sin. Um, it's caused by sin when it's biblically allowed, uh, and specifically adultery. If we go to Matthew 19's version of this story, it expands it and says, uh, this. Uh, it's called the Matthean exception, that, that, that except in the case of adultery, of unfaithfulness, you, you can't have divorce. And then Paul adds this desertion uh, by an unbelieving spouse for a believing spouse that is another biblical allowance for divorce. But again, not the ideal, not not what God's after here, although it's allowed for in those situations. But although the Bible allows for it, I think we need to let Mark, in particular, with the way this this teaching is presented, be as stark as it is for us, as clear as it is for us, because Jesus actually doesn't want us dealing with this issue the way the Pharisees wanted to deal with it. The Pharisees wanted to play legal games, figure out escape routes. They wanted to think about marriage in a way that was maintaining their ability to be the one who called the shots. Kevin DeYoung says, that's like, plan, uh, learning to fly by doing nothing but practicing crash landings. Or learning to fight a battle by doing nothing but practicing retreats, retreating from the battle. It's getting off on the wrong foot. They want to think about how to get out of it. Jesus wants to go all the way back to creation and define it, and that's what he does. And the, the, maybe the most important thing in our passage this morning is that God defines marriage. God does this. He did it in creation when he made them male and female and brought them together in this lifetime commitment that becomes one fleshness. It's just astounding. Here's a definition of marriage I'd like to propose for us. Marriage is created. It's so important. Maybe the most important thing we leave here this morning is marriage created and defined by God and is a sacred union, a holy union between one man and one woman. The covenant is intended for life and to point beyond itself to God's covenant love and faithfulness in Christ. Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting from the Genesis 2 passage. Jesus quoted to Paul here following his master's lead in defining marriage from Genesis 2, not Deuteronomy 24, and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage points beyond itself to this theological, spiritual reality of this relationship between God, who's the husband of his people, and his church, his bride. It's bigger than itself. And Jesus wants us to know the divine origin of marriage. That that's, could we leave that up there, actually, for now? Um, but so so that's, that's the definition, divinely originated, divinely defined then. And notice, it necessarily starts with male and female. It starts with these these human beings who are equally human, of equal worth and dignity and value made in God's image, but intentionally distinct as male and female. And the unity they come to is an awesome, profound, mysterious thing, but it is necessary they be distinct and different for that unity. It's not uniformity. The unity is an amazing result of two very intentionally different things, male and female, coming together to create something gloriously unified that ends up being called one flesh. That's a way of describing a depth of relationship that transcends, that trumps, that, that goes well beyond even the relationship you have with a child who shares your DNA. That's never called the the kind of one flesh reality, that kind of intimacy that is created in this marriage covenant, this marriage relationship. People say Jesus never said anything about so-called gay marriage or homosexuality. That's just not true. It's just he did it in a positive way. And he does it right here. He says marriage exists. When two distinct male and females come together in this covenant, that creates an amazing unity. It's not uniformity. It's a unity that is amazing because of the intended gender distinction that's there. He does say something about it. He weighs in on it very clearly here. And he says there's a leaving of the family and a cleaving, a coming together, holding fast of these two. And they become one flesh. It's an amazing thing, a divine origin of this, but then an astounding result of a one fleshness, the strongest of human bonds. That's stronger than any other, I would say, that we have on a human level here. The hard thing about this, though, is like everything else in our lives. These grand and glorious spiritual realities work themselves out in such normal daily ways. And marriage ceremonies even, something awesome is happening there, but often it can be very human. Last Saturday I was preparing to preach this message in La Mirada and I looked at my calendar and I said, oh man, I have no time on Saturday to do any sermon prep because... The day was filled with two major events. The first, um, Ruth and Richard Dix's 50th wedding anniversary celebration. That we were going to go to that first, and I thought, wow, maybe that's not a distraction from sermon prep. Maybe that's the most important way to prepare for this sermon this morning. I just have the Dix's stand up here and say, just do that, right? And, uh, and, and it was amazing. But as I heard about their life and the mission field in the Congo and here, and, and, and I thought about the way their marriage is, is an example to us now, I thought so, so much of it, most of it has just been really normal looking stuff raising kids who gave him heartache and joys. It, it, was, it was just such normal-looking things. So this awesome mystery of Christ and his church is displayed in just mundane. And, and I thought, what does it look like for, for Christ to love his church in the Dick's marriage? And these days, the, the scene that stands out to me most is them pulling into church early, so that Richard can get out and pull Ruth's wheelchair out and gently help her in it and bring her in and and get her a place where they can worship together one more time. And I thought, that's it. This is this grand, awesome thing played out in simple daily patient compassion. And then that night, we went to a wedding of a couple at the Brea Community Center. It It was a beautiful wedding. And the, the couple looked beautiful, the wedding party looked beautiful, the music was beautiful, the good things, gospel things were being said from up front. But it was in a community center, and outside I kept hearing KC and the Sunshine Band thumping through the wall after another wedding was done. And the sound system was just really troubling, and there was feedback, and there was distortion in the sound system. And every once in a while it would just go, woo, and everybody was sort of startled by it. And I thought, this is perfect. <laughs> I did. I said, this is perfect. This is what marriage is something glorious and beautiful with a whole lot of distortion woven into it, and feedback, and and, it, and the humanity of it was just evident in the midst of the beauty of it. And I thought, there's something right about that. And it was good preparation to preach this sermon, because there's so much normalcy in all of this. And that can be one of the hardest parts of it, that hanging in there on a daily basis building that foundation more in our relationships with the Lord and with each other in a way where there's solidity there, there's faithfulness there for the long haul. God defines this, and therefore let not man separate. You know the Supreme Court doesn't define marriage? Did you know that? Did you know the states don't? Did you you know that cultural trends don't? God does. That's actually true of everything. God defines marriage. He, he does that. And it doesn't mean even most people agree with God's definition a lot of the time. But God's people should. And so he defines it as what he intends for it to be. And, and it's something awesome. And, and marriage, as we see, is, is intended to point beyond itself It's appointed to tell the truth about the gospel, the good news that God loves his people in Christ in a way that is relentless and pursuing and undenied and amazingly, astoundingly gracious. Not waiting for the beloved to be faithful, to be faithful. Not waiting for the beloved to be lovely, to love. Not waiting for her to demonstrate all of this wonderful lovability or worthiness. But in her mess, in her unloveliness, he loves. Even in her rebellion, he loves his unfaithful bride. God hates divorce. He says that clearly in the Bible. And he hates it because of how devastating it is to our lives. But really the main reason he hates divorce is because it lies about him. It doesn't display his love in marriage the way he intends marriage to. It doesn't advance the gospel the way he intends marriage to do. To fail to stay faithful in the covenant of marriage is to hinder the gospel's advance in the world. I don't think divorce is always sinful. I think there are biblical grounds for marriage, but it's always sad. It's always failure. It's always tragic. Listen to one theologian. As long as Christ keeps his covenant with his bride, the church, and as long as the church by the sustaining grace of God remains the chosen people of Christ, then the very meaning of marriage will include what God has joined together. Let no one separate. Jesus says, don't divorce your spouse and marry someone else. If you do, you've committed adultery. Why is it adultery? Ultimately, it's adultery because it betrays the truth about Christ that marriage is meant to display. Jesus never, never, never does that to his bride. He never forsakes her. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her. He always takes her back when she wanders. He always is patient with her. He always cares for her and provides for her and protects her in wonder of wonders. He even delights in her. We are called to something as true disciples that can't be explained apart from the power of the gospel, a kind of love in relationships that looks like God's, that isn't based on all the things we get out of it. I'd love to see examples of this. And and the great thing is we're not limited even to our own experiences or marriages to, to see this. We look to others to see it. That's why single people can be incredibly blessed and encouraged by this display because it doesn't have to be you being the one displaying it in marriage. But Robertson McQuilkin is a godly man who I found out last service is actually good friends uh, with uh, the Kimbers, and he was a, he was a missionary in Japan for a long time, and then became the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, and McQuilkin was at the prime of his influence and ministry as a leader, as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, as the director of different mission boards. He was speaking and traveling in just the prime of his career. And at an unusually young age, his wife started to develop Alzheimer's. And It it got so bad, he was pondering whether he should quit all of his responsibilities to care for her 24-7. And he got quite a bit of advice from well-intentioned Christians who said, Robertson, why would you leave this amazing influence you have for the sake of the gospel to care for a woman who doesn't even know your name anymore? Well, he decided they were wrong. And he decided to step down from everything he was doing to care for Muriel. And he gave his resignation speech at Columbia in South Carolina. And, and this is just one minute of it that I want you to hear as he, he reflects on this decision he made. I haven't in my life
1: experienced easy decision making on major decisions. But uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one because circumstances dictated it? Uh, Muriel, now uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me. There can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, but as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful
0: person. Well, if you read the book he wrote out of this experience called A Promise Kept, he talks about the fact that people were constantly asking him how he was doing. And he realized that their concern for him often came out of a realization that he was no longer getting all the things you often go into marriage expecting. Um, he, he writes in his book things like um, needs for communication and understanding and affirmation and common interests and sexual fulfillment and the list goes on. These are the things we assume we will get from marriage. And if we don't get them, we we see the value of that commitment go away. Well, he said in this experience with his wife, he started to realize how all these uh, reputed, indispensable characteristics of a good marriage had slipped away one by one to the point where everything you assume you necessarily must be getting for marriage for it to be a remotely good marriage, he was no longer receiving communication and understanding and affirmation and common interest and in sexual fulfillment were no longer part of his marriage. And he said this, and I reflected on the odd irrelevance of every one of those criteria for me. It's so interesting. And he says, he says it was relatively easy for him to run a major university compared to this challenge. He said, I could manage a multi-million dollar budget and raise money and, and oversee all of these needs and faculty and responsibilities, he said, but I never imagined how desperate I would be when I wanted my wife to take a shower. And she just didn't want to. And how desperately she wanted to go to the supermarket with me, but she would take everything off the shelves and things out of other people's carts. And and how do I manage this? And, And he said, nothing in my life brought me to the end of myself and demanded greater resources from me than I could ever imagine. Friends, it's not a coincidence that after this teaching on marriage... In the Gospels, like in Mark, what immediately follows is the teaching on little children epitomizing kingdom people, those who are utterly dependent and utterly trusting and utterly needy. That's who Jesus holds up as the ones who really get the kingdom of God well. And that's where we go. See, this isn't primarily, like all these passages, aren't primarily on the details of what he's teaching, but the foundational teaching is true discipleship. What it really means to rest in Christ, to depend on him for all he gives us in himself. His righteousness, his forgiveness, his sacrificial death for us. The gospel Taking root in our lives is what this passage is about. Yes, the details are the gospel taking root in our lives in marriages that reflect who God is in our love and faithfulness, even when it's hard, maybe especially when it's hard. The point is discipleship. The point is getting to the ends of ourselves where we are like little children before God. And, and let me call out the men here for a moment. Men have a much harder time feeling needy than women do. We're equally needy, but men don't like that idea. Actually, McQuilkin says he was actually shocked by the response people had to his stepping away from his responsibilities. And he said he actually thinks the fact that he was a man increased people's shock. People are less shocked when a woman will stay with her husband in a time like this. And he said he talked to an oncologist friend of his who deals with cancer patients all the time, he says, who lives constantly with dying people. And that oncologist told him almost all women stand by their men as they're dying. Very few men do. And so so it's just astounding how, how we can give ourselves an out. And it starts with not realizing how needy we are thinking we can somehow redefine, recreate, depend on our own resources to live as God calls us to. We've got to see the difference between living as true disciples and living as the world. Let me conclude by addressing in particular people. If you're single here this morning, marriage is a profoundly beautiful thing, but you're not limited to your personal experience to benefit from that beautiful thing. It's great. We are capable of learning vicariously. We can see things that we're not personally experiencing and and gain the main reason they're there. The other thing is, is, uh, you don't need to wait to love in amazing self-sacrificial ways until you're married. You can start that right now. Yes, marriage has an intensity and a dailiness to it, but but you can start loving in these radical ways now. And and finally, marriage isn't the ultimate. Remember, it points beyond itself to something else. Marriage won't exist in heaven because it doesn't need to anymore because the shadow has now become the reality. And so live for the ultimate. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven... Fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. So live for what is ultimate, even in what marriage points to. Then, if you do get married, your marriage won't become an idol it won't become an ultimate, it's not intended to. If you're divorced here this morning, I wanna say there is amazing hope, there is amazing grace at the cross. And this is true whether you're a victim of divorce, whether you were ignorant of these things when you were divorced, whether you're the cause of your divorce, whatever your circumstances, there is amazing grace at the cross of Jesus. And amazing restoration and redemption and repair. I said I'm still dealing with some of the fallout of my parents' divorce. But I'm also rejoicing in the way God has redeemed all that came out of that. He's redeeming. He's the redeeming God. I was was reflecting on this with my father and stepmother in Florida with my daughter Paige this week. The amazing ways God has worked redemption and restoration and amazing fruitfulness through situations that are the result of this tragedy. He does that. That's what God's like. He loves to restore what the locusts have eaten. God loves to do this. And he has the power to do it. He has the power to redeem and repair whatever messes people have made for us or we've made for ourselves. If you're married, see your marriage is not an end in itself, but it means to something far greater. That's when it'll really give you freedom and joy. That's when it'll really accomplish its goal. So we need to devote ourselves to... Our relationships with Christ and depending on Him, so that marriage then can beautifully reflect, beautifully reflect God's faithfulness and love to us and for all of us. We're all part of the hard hearted ones. We're all part of the ones who, who God works with in our hard heartedness. And we all, no matter our circumstances relative to divorce, need to devote ourselves to Christ, to resting in Him, depending on Him, His power, His strength, and the identity we have in Him as our hope. And then our lives can be lives of faithfulness, as He calls us to. Let me pray. Lord, help us. We are indeed a needy people, a frail, weak, struggling people. Lord, would you help us please to... Um, run to the cross, run to Jesus' blood and righteousness, run to uh, our Savior's side as the only source of uh, our hard-heartedness, a solution to our hard-heartedness and to forgiveness and restored relationship with you. Lord, thank you that you, in the gospel, give us the power to live lives of amazing, surprising faithfulness that's able to show the world a glimpse of what you're like. Help us to do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.